Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Dr. Sylvia Earle, a marine biologist and renowned oceanographer whose life is truly about oceans and all they are to us, to our planet. Dr. Earle has had a long history with National Geographic, which is completely understandable, and they've had a recent collaboration with the result of a truly amazing book, National Geographic, Ocean, a Global Odyssey. It's so educational and informational, and at this point in the year, a truly great gift for really anyone and everyone. So let's meet Dr. Earl. Dr. Sylvia Earl, good morning, and thank you so greatly for taking time with us today. I'm so glad to be a part of the action. Well, oh, that's a great way to phrase it because you are uh, really at the center of the action around uh, oceans, and uh, currently I'm holding in hand Ocean, A Global Odyssey, a, a new book from National Geographic, which is an incredible uh, volume of, of so much life and history and beauty of all that's in the ocean. So, uh, and you're responsible. This is, uh, this is your world. This is where you live. Well, people ask me sometimes, how, did, how long did it take you to write that book? And I said, <laughs> well, <laughs> there was that COVID year, a quiet year of reflection, but it also dives down into a lifetime of exploring the ocean, but also looking at what we now know based on many experts who have been using their lifetimes of of getting to know what is the ocean, how does it affect us, how do we affect the ocean? And just the beauty and splendor of what lives in the sea that we're just beginning to appreciate in ways that we could not when I was a child or almost any time time before the present time. So can we look at your life and we see the accomplishments? What... What started it for you? Uh, what intrigued you to pursue this path and, and delve into the depths? Well, the ocean got my attention at a very early age when I got knocked over by a wave. <laughs> I was three years old on the beach in New Jersey. When my family moved to Florida, my backyard was the ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, when I was 12. And I, I read a book by William Beebe called Half Mile Down, and he described what it was like with his engineer buddy, Ocean, uh, Otis Barton, what it was like to go deep in the ocean where it's dark all of the time, except for the flash, sparkle, and glow of bioluminescent creatures, and it just captured my imagination. And then came Jacques Cousteau and, and other explorers who began to open not only my eyes and mind and heart to what is out there in the ocean, but but others who were able to see what no one had been able to see before, including in 1960, Jacques Picard and Don Walsh, who went to the deepest place in the ocean. And some of those adventures, some of those explorations are described in the book, Ocean, the global odyssey. How do we how do we know what we now know? How do we know what water is? How what what the ocean is like? Where did the salt come from anyway? How deep is the ocean? 
like people say, how high is the sky? <laughs> well, some of these are unanswerable questions right now, but even now the actual depth of the ocean is kind of a moving target because we haven't had access to the deep sea until fairly recently, and we're still still looking, still asking. And for yourself, do you continue to to dive and to explore and go into the depths? <laughs> well, I'm still breathing, so I'm still <laughs> diving. Absolutely. That's a great thing about diving, that you can do it from an early age up until whatever age. And as long as you're feeling good and you're breathing, diving is accessible. And there are little submarines that now make it possible at any age uh, or any capability to just, if you can step into a car or climb into an airplane, submersibles now make exploration of the sea possible personally. And then there are all those underwater robots and other means to vicariously get down and see what's in the deep. Well, your description of that, Dr. Earl, really, uh, I think, underscores the New Yorker's title for you. They call you Her Deepness. (laughs) Well, I I try to live up to that or down to that (laughs) as much as I can. You know, one thing that I do love about the opportunity to assemble what we now know what we don't know about the ocean in this book, Ocean of Global Odyssey, is the opportunity to to share the view of the extraordinary diversity of life in the ocean. When asked what kinds of creatures live in the sea, you're likely to hear people respond with sharks and whales, coral reefs, and maybe tuna fish. <laughs> but in a, a big fold-out, four pages, both sides, of the nature of life in the sea that is where the greatest abundance and diversity of life actually occurs. Only about half of the major divisions of animals occur anywhere on the land, and all of them occur in the ocean. And it's great fun to show their pictures and tell little stories about things like spoon worms and and peanut worms, arrow worms, the the kinds of jellies that don't occur with peanut butter, but you know, <laughs> they're out there in the ocean. That we just have um, the most extraordinary forms, variations on the theme of what lives at all, from the tiniest microbes, archaea, and bacteria to the biggest creatures who've ever lived on Earth, the whales, the blue whale in particular. And and that is the thing. We we see the magnificence now uh, of these creatures, these massive whales, and here in, in the Puget Sound area, the beautiful orcas. Alongside that, we know that, they're, that the species is really threatened and so I, I, with what we can see and tell, when you talk about these really remote, uh, tiny creatures way deep in the ocean, their lives might, must also be threatened as greatly. Yeah, you know, we don't shy away from describing the problems about what we're putting into the ocean. 
and what we're taking out in this uh, ocean, a global odyssey. We actually, in the, I, I keep saying we because I, I had the wonderful challenge of assembling all this and offering my input, but we have profiles of dozens of scientists and explorers, engineers, champions for the ocean, and not only focusing on the magnitude of what we're taking out of the ocean that has consequences, you know, and, and the effect of the ocean on climate and the effect of climate on the ocean and how what we're doing really affects all of the nature of the planet and how we are experiencing unprecedented decline of the very systems that underpin our existence. So 90% of the sharks, the swordfish, the tunas, the rockfish in California and Washington along the west coast of the United States and around the world in, in Antarctica, the, the taking of krill that really pulls the under <laughs> from underneath the many creatures that depend on krill for their existence, whales, seals, birds, squid, and even taking the squid, having an effect on the carbon cycle. A study was commissioned by the International Monetary Fund that was reported at Davos in the World Economic Forum in 2020 about the not just the, the ecological value of whales, but they put a number on it being economists, they looked at the value in terms of carbon and climate on whales alive today at a, a big T trillion dollars, just in dollars and cents, the carbon value, which relates to climate. But if it works in an economic and climate context for whales, it ought to weigh, it does affect the carbon value of tunas that are now in the Pacific, bluefin tuna down to 3% of what they were in the 1970s. And we've done a similar drastic <laughs> cause of destruction of squids, of swordfish, at least down to 10% of what remained, 90% taken. Sharks, I mean, we need the sharks alive, not dead. Whether you're thinking in terms of their carbon value their ecosystem value, or even their tourism value. little country in the Pacific, Palau, puts a, do a dollar value on sharks, a million dollars per shark, because of crazy people such as I who will go to, to Palau to have the glorious experience of swimming with sharks. They are such magnificent animals. You know, people pay a lot to go be with birds. Bird watching is billions of dollars are invested in traveling the world to to really check off seeing birds of a special kind. Maybe fish will be accorded similar uh, excitement. Let's go see the parrotfish, if there are any left. Most of them are now being taken, too, from marketplace. I mean, just we need to change our thinking about the nature of life in the sea. And let's diverge to that for a moment then, talking about the decimation of all these fish, the tuna and the squid, the the whales, and, and how 
what what do we need to do? It, is it that we're consuming them or is it the pollution is killing them? It's both. Hmm. We, we've stopped killing whales commercially. We did started through international agreements in the mid-1980s. And there's evidence that when we stop the killing <laughs> and start the caring, recovery is possible. There are more whales today than when I was a child. And the commercial killing of whales, since we stopped doing that and started embracing them with a different approach, different attitude, and respecting their societies, their language, their communities, their families, and really respecting their right to live. It's also true with sea turtles. Policies have changed. They used to be just products, something to eat, turtle soup and turtle steak and turtle eggs that we now say, wait, stop. We love, love turtles. We don't want to kill them. We don't, certainly don't want to kill them all, but we came perilously close. But we, we, we can change, and when we do, recovery is possible. So by looking at individual species and, and taking action for them, but also looking at the whole ecosystems, the goal now that was celebrated and expressed at the Glasgow Climate Forum that I that I attended just a couple of weeks ago to demonstrate that caring for the ocean and wild places on the land really, it's not just a nice thing to do. It's just not, not because they're beautiful and and restore our, our, <laughs> our you know, attitude about life, but because we need them. They safeguard the natural systems that make Earth a livable place. But the goal of safeguarding at least 30% of the land and sea by 2030 is a widely embraced concept now globally. We have a long way to go. Only well, less than 15% of the land is safeguarded where creatures are, and trees and birds and mammals and all forms of life are given the opportunity to prosper and survive without us killing them. On the ocean, only about 3% is fully or highly protected. And closer to 10% has some form of protection. But we're looking at safeguarding highly, fully protecting 30% of the ocean by 2030, 10 times what we now have really officially endorsed. So we have a long way to go, but even that is not good enough to really return to a safe zone for our existence. We have to think about how all of the natural systems that we have depleted or poisoned or in one way or the other made dangerous for our continued existence. We have to, now that we know, take action in a very scaled up, speeded up way. And the good news is we know we have to do this. We know we can do it. And when we do it, we can see positive results. I mean, we should be so excited. <laughs> 21st human beings, as never before, armed with knowledge, have the ability to safeguard the future of, of life on Earth and our lives right along with it. And it, it, then we need to add to that, I, I guess, 
if if they are willing, if we are willing, because that seems to right. Exactly. Yeah, you're so right. Because we still seem to stumble over. Oh, but the economy, uh, you know. Oh, but the person doing X job, they'll be out of work. H- how do we change that kind of perspective? Well, they'll really be out of work when they can't breathe, mm. or when there are no fish left, or when the trees are all gone. What do we do then? There's that little story called the Lorax. This is a Dr. Seuss book that talks about, in a metaphorical way, about how we had this appetite for for trees of a certain sort. We cut them all. But there's one seed left, cause for hope. Right now, cause for hope are the places, the wild places, the last wild places that remain, offer sources of restoration of what we've lost. If we really take seriously that our economy, our health, our security, everything, our existence, really depends on respecting nature and embracing what remains of the wild places and restoring what we can of places that have been been damaged or lost. Half the coral reefs still remain. That's good news. They're not all gone. The kelp forests, they're not all gone, but they're, they're in swift decline because of what we're taking out of the ocean, because of what we're putting into the ocean, because of not understanding the connection between those organisms that photosynthesize put oxygen into the atmosphere, capture the carbon, maintain our life support system. It isn't hard. Kids get it. Anybody can get it if you just look at the evidence and say, oh, now I see. You know, we, we really love trees because they're beautiful, but we need to keep trees and kelp forests and plankton and other creatures that share Earth with us, keep them alive because, oh, they keep us alive. You know, it's a nice dream to go set up housekeeping on Mars or the moon. It's closer than Mars, but there is no atmosphere that we can simply step out of our spacecraft and breathe. We live seconds, not years or centuries, if we had to make do with another part of the universe. Earth is our home, our home. We have to take care of the systems that take care of us. And that's, I think, the final message, the overall message of the book, Ocean, a Global Odyssey. We need to take care of the ocean. We need to take care of nature as if our lives depend on it, because they do. Mm. So I think to a time when uh, here in Washington State, Mount St. Helens exploded erupted, uh, and it just devastated the land around it. It looked like what I imagine maybe the moon does. It was just gray ash. The river totally evaporated. But perhaps it was 15 to 20 years down the road, all of a sudden, the area was lush again. So can we think of that in terms of the ocean? Is there still that kind of recovery? Will nature recover itself there, too, if we just not decimated any further? Right. Well, take Prince William Sound as an example, too. That the oil spill had devastating consequences on birds, on otters, on little guys who live in the, in the, in the sea and along the shore. 
and now it's that was like 1989, right? Um, there is apparent recovery, and yet there are things that are missing. The the populations of sea otters have not fully recovered. The coastal uh, zones that once were really rich with a lot of little guys that live in the crevices and the rocks, and um, they're not fully recovered, but they have recovered to the extent that they have. Why? Because there was a big, broad Pacific out there that had the ingredients of recovery, the, the larval stages of many of the creatures that have been able to recover to some extent. Imagine if around Mount St. Helens there was no source of recovery, no pollen, no seeds drifting in from distant places, no rain falling that was generated from a global ecosystem. And so that's part of the reason that we have to protect as much of the natural systems that remain, have the full library of life included. And when we clear-cut forests, we lose that that network of, of life. That if we have it maintained somewhere, there's always hope that we can use these treasure troves of life to restore depleted areas, damaged areas. And right now, the opportunity to embrace those last wild places, whether it's in Washington State or around the globe, land and sea, they're fast disappearing. Old growth forests in North America, now we only have maybe 5% left. Every thousand-year-old tree needs to be regarded as a treasure. Because we, even in a thousand years, we can't replace an ecosystem once it's been depleted, clear-cut, or burned. We we have to really think seriously, as if like we have this last best chance to safeguard the library of life. Because it's those storehouses of knowledge, the the DNA that exists in in life that we can tap into for recovery, but we shouldn't lose it in the first place. No, we, we know what to do. We know why it's important. We just have to resist the temptation to to take, because it's convenient, because you, on the short term, can sell trees for lumber, and then they're gone, and gone is the opportunity for a safe future, but to get over the idea that it's all about me or us now, because I think it's important to understand that in our hands, in our decisions right now, the future of all of life on Earth really really rests. The climate scientists say 10 years. Those who are looking at the biodiversity of life and how much we've lost, how quickly we're losing the the elements of complete systems we're losing on the order of a million species are predicted to be lost by the middle of this of this century unless we really step up and speed up our our action to take care of the natural systems it should not be so hard we're not just protecting areas because they're beautiful but because we need them but they need us too 
you know, is to really up our game and and realize that it, yes, our economy is is reliant on safeguarding nature, not to destroy it. You know, we could kill whales and sell them, and that would be great for those who benefit from selling the whales. But all of us lose. Right now, we're killing tuna as if there will always be more tuna. But with 3% of the blue fins and 10% of many of the others, maybe as much as 20%, but none of those numbers sound good in, in terms of how fast we have cut them down, lost them, and are continuing to capture them and market them as if, as if they will always be around. They're not free goods. I mean, we treat them as if they are. Fish are having an accounting base of zero. So do squid. They're free goods. Go get them, sell them, profit from them. But then everybody loses. We need to rethink eating wild animals that we call seafood on a large scale. So now we know what we could not know when I was a kid. But the kids of today are the power that really it's going to take, is taking, to reverse the decline of the planet. Yes, what such a critical message. I think it just needs to be blasted out throughout the, across the planet. And, and, and there's that spark of hope, but it's a spark. Yes, the younger generation, I think, really grasps it. And we, the older, need to just be part of the solution now, listening to what you're saying about where we spend and what we eat, what we consume, consume both in terms of uh, food, but also j- just general consumption. The goods. Yeah, yeah, the goods. Right. We can't say we don't know. The knowledge is there, but we do have laws still on the books that reinforce behaviors. Uh, you know, we subsidize industrial fishing. If we could just stop industrial fishing, stop the subsidies for industrial fishing in the high seas, that's half the world. If we could safeguard half of the world by by just stopping the subsidies and stopping the marketplace for wild animals extracted on this mega scale by the ton, hundreds, thousands of tons of squid and tunas, and other wild animals taken from the sea. It's the biggest wildlife trade on the planet. We have laws to protect wild birds, wildlife trade, in wild animals from the land. But we subsidize the trade in wild animals in the sea, from squid to tunas to swordfish to sharks, you name it. We're just like waging war on these creatures. And we as taxpayers are helping to support it. We as consumers happily go to the market or to a restaurant and support it by making choices that really are underpinning this wildlife trade. So knowing that should cause us to say, hey, I can do something. (laughs) I can make a choice that is different. I can help support changing the law that forces me as a taxpayer to subsidize this this legal extraction of wild animals on a mega scale from the high seas. 
and even in some cases from coastal waters that isn't working in terms of that goal of of continuing to take some but not so many that the populations crash when over the last half century or so we've seen such a dramatic decline of of wild animals in the sea we know that this goal of sustainability isn't working whatever we're doing isn't <laughs> isn't making the right policies. We, we need to rethink how much we're taking and how we view wildlife generally from ocean sources. So we've got a chance to get it right. But we need to, each of us, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence and make your own decisions, own choices. When you see salmon on the menu, ask what does it really cost? How much make a farm salmon means a lot of wild fish have been captured to feed the farm fish, or in cases where they're looking at clear-cutting places to grow soybeans to try to figure out how to convince salmon to eat soybeans instead of wild fish, there's still a big cost associated with it. And you can make your choice, but you should make that choice knowledgeably and realize that wild animals, whether they're fish or birds, or other animals have a hidden cost, an ecosystem cost that we need to account for. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing what we can concretely do as individuals to make a difference, to make a change here. And one other thing before we have to wrap up, I want to mention that in the season of gift giving to consider this amazing book which will both educate inform and also delight us because all the photography is just so glorious so ocean a global odyssey available at all of our favorite book sources right dr earl you know, thank you and i hope that actually the book is meant to put a smile on your face <laughs> that there's so many beautiful things there and stories that are uplifting it's not doom and gloom, but we don't shy away from the problems. The idea is to inspire people to care and to show what can be done to make a difference. And that's what we do need. And thank you for being the inspiration for that and having the insights and knowledge that you do, Dr. Earl. Thank you also for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me on board. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a pleasure. That brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Dr. Sylvia Earle and Sunday Morning Magazine with Dr. Ruchi Kapoor. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then either of the show names, and then look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of good health and well-being. And as we look forward to a very busy and festive week ahead, have a wonderful week. And then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning. <laughs>